Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that as we always do, as we open your word, that it will instruct us, that it would truly speak to our hearts, that it will penetrate uh, all the fog of worries and concerns and uh, misconceptions that we have to keep us clear on uh, where we stand before you and who Jesus is. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, I remember uh, going to uh, buy a, my car. Actually, I bought a few cars in my lifetime in various places. But I always notice the same thing. Uh, for those of you who've never gone to buy a car, it's a, quite a wonderful experience because from the moment you enter the showroom, you are tr- usually... Some places not, not, not so, but usually you're treated like a king, right? You know, the salesman will come and make you feel like you're the most important person in the world. They'll make you sit down in the car, ask you to feel the leather. Oh, so soft, right? And the aircon, listen to the stereo sound. And the best part is, of course, the test drive. Right? You know, you go out, the test drive, it's a brand new car. You know, the new car smell, smells really good. And all the time, the salesman is telling you the sales pitch. Oh, he's telling you how great this car is, what a wonderful car, you really need this car, you know, this car is the car that will really make your life complete. But uh, I always notice that whenever I buy a car, they almost spend uh, very little time in terms of telling you the most important thing, which is how you're going to afford to pay for this car. Right? So, you know, the, 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 the sales pitch, driving around, that takes for a long time, but then when you finally sit down in front of the, uh, the piece of paper, which you're supposed to sign, it's really filled with all the small prints uh, especially in Singapore, you know, all the loan repayment schedule, all the path value and the compound interest rate. And uh, it's all really confusing, but the salesman always say, don't worry about it, you know, it's, it's very cheap, you can pay longer and longer, here, just sign here. And it actually takes, in my impression, less time to drive the car out of the showroom than it is to actually sign the piece of paper. Because they don't really explain to you very much what it costs to buy this car. They just really want you to buy the car. And the sad thing is, uh, that's probably why car salesmen don't really have a good reputation. But the problem is that for many churches today, I think that we, we, you know, churches act like car salesmen. In the sense that they just want to give you the sales pitch of why, why it's so great to have Jesus in your life, uh, tell you all the good news, but they don't actually tell you the reality of what it means to follow Jesus. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? So today is really significant because Jesus himself tells us what it means to come after him and to follow him. Now, today's passage is actually quite a long passage, and you might sort of think, how are we going to weave all these things together? Really, there are only three strands, or actually uh, three strands which tie the whole passage together, and the three strands are, it's all about what the identity and the mission of Jesus, and then it's always you know, tied up with what it means to follow Jesus, and also the experiences of the disciples. Because really, if you look at all those three passages, uh, sorry, all the, the whole section, that's, the, those are the main things that it talks about. Jesus, the disciples, and what it means to follow him. So today, the background as we come to today's passage is, Jesus has been doing lots and lots of things. As we've been looking at chapter 1 to 9, we've been seeing lots of things that Jesus has done. And one thing that is really clear about the person of Jesus is that he's a person of authority, of great authority. You can't deny that. The things that Jesus has done shows that he's got power and authority. Uh, we've seen that he has the power and authority to interpret God's word greater than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He has the authority to overcome demons and to exercise spirits. He has the authority to heal. He has the authority to raise the dead. He has authority over nature to calm the storm. But on top of that, he seems to have even more authority that only God can have. So as we've seen over the last few chapters, 
this element of his power authority is actually starting to get him into trouble with the religious authorities. The power and authority which only God seems to be able to have, Jesus is able to do. So in chapter 5, verse 17 to 26, Jesus says that he has the authority to forgive sins. And he forgives the sins of the paralytic. In chapter 7, verse 36 to 50, Jesus has the authority to forgive the sins of the sinful woman. So here, Jesus, as we've seen from chapter 1 to 9, has lots of authority, but people are having trouble to understand who he really is. He can do all these things, but who is Jesus exactly? That is the question on everyone's lips. So before we actually come to the passage today, in last week, when we, we didn't touch on it, but you would have done it in your Bible studies, in chapter 9, verse 7, uh, Herod, the king at the time, uh, heard all that was going on. And he was perplexed because some were saying about Jesus, right, that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. So Jesus had been doing all these things, but the people around him had a very hazy, fuzzy picture of the identity of Jesus, who he was, what was he really about. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. You know, it's like, you know, sometimes you do a jigsaw puzzle, but you don't know what the real picture is, and you sort of fill in all the little blocks so far, but up until a certain point, you can't see what the overall picture is. And I think that by chapter 9, this is where people were at. They could sort of see that Jesus has power, but just how much power does he have? Where does he stand in terms of the identity ranking? So now we come to this very, very important uh, historical account of Jesus. Now, this story is really important because it is one of the few historical accounts which is covered at length in every one of the four gospel accounts of Jesus' life. And uh, the story begins here, okay, in this place called Bethsaida, on the north of the Sea of Galilee. Now, we read here to begin in verse 10, uh, the, the apostles had returned and they reported to Jesus what they had done. Now, what had happened was, in the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus had sent out his 12 apostles to go to the surrounding region to preach about the kingdom of God. And now they had come back to Jesus and reported uh, their, their status report. So Jesus withdraws to this place called Bethsaida, a bit like, uh, I guess, their version of taking a Tiger Airways a holiday to Phuket for a bit of for a weekend's rest and re- recreation, and uh, they were—I I, suspect—that they wanted to withdraw to have some time of peace and quiet. But unfortunately, as we read in this account, the crowds learned that Jesus was at this remote, secluded place near Bethsaida, and they came to Jesus. And Jesus, even though he was really tired and the disciples were tired, welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Now, it was getting late in the day, and this is what happens, right? In verse 12, late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him, the twelve disciples came to him and said, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. This is a very reasonable request. Uh, it's a caring thing to do. Imagine if you're in a really isolated place. Pulau Ubin, I guess it's the most, I mean, or Sungai Bulo Nature Park, right? 
find an isolated place in Singapore, okay, where there is no hawker center, no NTC, and no place to live. So, this huge crowd has followed Jesus and his disciples to a very remote place. It says here in verse um, 14, about 5,000 men. Okay, now this, if you note here, it's just men. So, there would have been more women and children. So, maybe 7,000, 6,000, 8,000 people altogether. And if you were one of the 12 disciples, what is the caring and loving thing to do? You would say, look, it's getting late. These people need to go somewhere where they can get food and where they can stay the night. It's not an unreasonable thing for them to ask Jesus to do that. They're doing it out of love and care. But look at the curious thing that Jesus says in verse 13. He replied, You give them something to eat. And they answered, We have only five loaves of bread and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all this crowd, Unless we go and buy food for all this crowd, about 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, have them sit in groups of 50 each. And the disciples did so, and everyone sat down. Now, uh, just so you understand, when the disciples say that they had five loaves of bread, they were not thinking of gardenia loaves, okay? okay? What they were thinking of was like this sort of loaf. Okay, this is the Middle Eastern loaf. So yesterday I went to a cold storage and, uh, okay, and uh, I bought this thing. It's uh, the taste of the Mediterranean. Okay, this is what they eat in the Middle East. Okay? And this is a sort of bread. Oh, how do you open this thing? Okay, this is a sort of bread that, uh, that, that they, were, they were talking about. They have five of these, five of these loaves. Now, if you have five of them, one, all right, just, just right, it comes in a pack of five. If you have five of them, okay, you can't, how many people can this feed? I, I, I mean, for, for myself, it's probably a, a bit much, but for my kids, probably one of them could eat it, right? <laughs> it's not very much, is it? Okay, and then there are two fish, okay, and the fish are not big-sized tuna, but the fish that they probably caught in, the, in the, the Sea of Galilee, which is right there next to. So the fish would be a bit like what you eat, like, you know what I bought here? When you go to the, when you go to the, if you go to the nasi, the Pongo nasi lemak, right? This is a small fish, okay? So now, if you, if, if you look at the size of this meal, how can this feed uh, 5,000 men and women and children? Uh, this wouldn't be enough to even feed us, isn't it? Today, how many men do we have here? I don't know. Maybe maximum, I don't know how, how big. But imagine 100 times the size of this room. How would this be enough food to feed them? So, really what Jesus is asking the disciples goes beyond human reasoning and human logic. But, what happens next? In verse 15, the disciples did as Jesus said and he made the people sit down. And taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them and he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Now, two points are made here by the disciples. One is, in verse 17, all ate and were satisfied. Everybody, the 5,000 men plus how many women and children, all ate out of this to begin with and they were all satisfied. They were all filled. 
But on top of that, they picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Now, again, uh, it's very important to, to know what they're talking about. The baskets are not picnic baskets. Okay, they're not like small baskets. The baskets that is used here, you see the word there in verse 17, basketfuls. This is the word that is used for the big baskets that uh, the, the Jews used to use at the harvest. You know, when you go harvesting and they put all their produce in, you need big baskets. You don't need picnic baskets. I mean, how ridiculous, right? Go picnic basket, carry all the stuff in from the harvest. No, it doesn't make sense. And this word basketfuls is, is the same word that the Romans used for the, for the baskets that they used to carry rocks in when they used to build roads. So an equivalent of this word, think basket in verse 17 as, you know those big baskets which they put the durians in? You know when you go and buy durians, those big baskets? Those are the sort of baskets that is in view here. There were 12 of those basketful of bread and fish left after everyone ate. More than 5,000 men ate and were satisfied. Now, surely that's a, a powerful miracle because even to begin with, this doesn't even fit into one small section of one basket. So what has Jesus done here? I think what was clearly achieved on that day was a miracle on the highest order, isn't it? It was, it was a superlative miracle. It, was a, it, it makes every miracle in the Old Testament of feeding pale in comparison. Because there was only one other feeding which is uh, quite similar where the prophet Elisha fed a hundred men with twenty loaves in 2 Kings chapter 4. But that's just a hundred men with twenty loaves. Uh, Jesus does what is similar to what God did for the people of Israel when they wandered in the desert. He gave them food, unlimited food. So this is a miracle of the highest order. Now, in verse 18, once... When Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowd say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. What about you? He asked, Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, God's Messiah or the Christ of God. Now, here we finally find that. Uh, the disciples and Jesus have finally found a moment of peace and quiet away from the crowds which were besieging him. And he takes this opportunity to ask them the same question. You notice it's the same question of chapter 9 verse 7 that Herod, the king, the tetrarch, was asking, Who am I? Who do the crowds say I am? Who do you say I am? And you notice in chapter 9 verse 7, Herod, the king, didn't have the answer. The crowds didn't have an answer. But now he's asking... The disciples, who do you say I am? After you've seen all these things, after you've seen the feeding of the 5,000 men, who do you say I am? Now, uh, when, I, when I have read the Bible many times, I'm sure for those of you who have been Christians for a while, you, you're familiar with this passage. I always thought that Jesus was looking Peter in the eye, right? You can sort of imagine Peter, uh, Jesus saying, who do you, Peter, say I am? But actually, that's not the case, because in verse 20, it says, what about you? Who do you say I am? The you there is a plural. Is that like, who do you guys, who do you lot think I am? So he's actually addressing the disciples. Who do you say I am? And Peter, as their representative, says the right answer. God's Messiah, the Son of God. He is their representative. Right? Peter is always the representative of the disciples. And he speaks for them and says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. Now what did Peter mean when he says, you are the Christ or the Messiah? 
Now Christ and Messiah are actually the same word. Christ is the Greek, Messiah is the Hebrew, and they both mean the anointed one. The anointed one. And the Old Testament had been pointing to an anointed one to come who would be a very powerful person. He would, this anointed person would come into the world on God's, as part of God's plan and be a very powerful person. Now I want you to think for a moment, who is the most powerful person, apart from Jesus, that you can think of today and in history? Who is the most powerful person that you can think of today and in history? Well, that person that you have in mind will not even come close to who the Anointed One represents, to who the Christ and Messiah represents. Because in Psalm chapter 2, which is up here, right, Psalm chapter 2, this is the picture of the identity of the Anointed One, the Christ. So I'll read it to you, it's a bit long, but it's worth remembering and reading. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His Anointed One or, the, or His Christ or Messiah. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then He rebukes them in His anger. He terrifies them in His wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son, today I become your father. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. So who is the Christ? The Christ is the long-awaited king. And he is not just a king who dies, but he is the eternal king. And he is also God's son. So I think when Peter answered for the disciples, he was giving Jesus the highest status that that anybody in the Old Testament could have. He was the anointed one, the Christ, Messiah. See, he got the final piece of the jigsaw. Other people were saying that maybe Jesus or John the Baptist, Elijah or the prophets to come. That's, that's very high already, right? It's like saying someone's a very high, exalted person. But, but, but Peter was saying he's way beyond, Jesus is way beyond a prophet, way beyond uh, uh, John the Baptist or Elijah. He is God's son. He is the eternal ruler. Now, I think this is a great challenge for us. And I want to ask you this question. What is the most important question that you will ever answer in your life? Okay, what is the most important question that you will ever answer in your life? Is it the answer for the question that will get you into university? Is it the answer to the question that you will give when you get married? Or is it the answer to the question that gets you that dream job? No, the most important question you will ever answer in your life is verse 20. Who do you say I am? Who do you say Jesus is? Because if Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the eternal ruler of the world, the absolute ruler of the world, and He is God's Son, then one day you will have to stand before God and answer that question, Who do you think Jesus is? See, some people think that when we go before God after we die, we will have to tell, ask God, you know, God will ask us to say, have you been a good person? But actually, God's not going to ask us that question. God already knows that there are no good people in this world. Right? He's not going to bother asking us a question that He knows that we are, when He knows we are not good. But what He's going to ask us is, 
who do you say Jesus is? Right? And there's no point saying, well, you know, uh, I gave money to the poor, I helped the old lady across the road, uh, I volunteered my time, because that's not the question. The question is, who do you say Jesus is? And unless you recognize Jesus for who he is, that he is God's son, that he is the Christ, that he is the eternal king, then how can we hope to go into his kingdom? How can we ever hope to be part of the, ru- the, the world that Jesus is bringing in if we do not even recognize the king? And that's why this question is so important. We need to be very sure of the answer. Who is Jesus? And we know from all the things that Jesus has been doing, He is the Christ, the Messiah. He is God's Son, the eternal ruler. Now, verse 21, something strange happens in verse 21. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. What a strange thing to do. You would have thought that finally when his disciples figured out who he was, that he would say, go and tell everybody who I am. Uh, is it because, you know, it's like, you know, when you do the exam paper, uh, you, you know, you're sort of told, oh, don't, don't tell the answer to other people, right, because they've got to do the exam too. Why is it Jesus tells the disciples, don't tell anyone who I am? I think it's because, as we can see in this passage, as we, under- as we go through, the disciples understand who Jesus is, but they don't quite understand what Jesus has come to do. What is his mission? Uh, we can see that in verse 46, because in verse 46, uh, it, it says that an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. But Jesus' mission was not to come here and to exercise his greatness by being some victorious king or a political ruler or be like King Solomon, have a big, temp- uh, big, uh, big, um, a big uh, not castle, but a big kingdom, right? But Jesus is here as the Christ to suffer. So if you look up here, in the, we're not going to go through each in turn, but if you look up here in the slide, three times in the, what was narrated to us in verse 10 to 50, Jesus tells the disciples, I'm here to suffer. I'm here to die. So straight away in verse 22, after they recognize who Jesus is, he says to them, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And on verse 30, on the transfiguration, what were they talking about? What was Jesus and Moses and Elijah talking about? They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. He wasn't departing to go to a holiday. He was departing earth, right? He was going to die. Verse 44, uh, while Jesus, while everyone was marveling at all, at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully, right? Pay attention. Okay, don't get carried away. Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of man. Now, this Christ, who is the eternal King, who is God's Son, well, he's not going to come to bring greatness to his disciples and uh, to rule politically in that way. But what's he going to do? He's going to suffer many things. He's going to be rejected by his own people, especially the religious leaders. He's going to be killed. Afterwards, he's going to be raised to life. He's going to depart from this earth. He's going to be betrayed into the hands of men. 
Now, a few things that uh, come out here, which I really want to draw to your attention because it, it helps us have a bit better picture of the identity of Jesus is, you notice Jesus keeps referring to himself as the Son of Man. You notice that? The Son of Man keeps doing this, the Son of Man keeps doing this, right? Now, this is a really strange way of talking because the Son of Man can just literally mean a human, right? Because I'm the Son of Man, you're all the Son of Man. But we don't talk that way, right? I mean, I know yesterday, some, of the, some people went to watch a, a movie and uh, you don't say, yes, yes, the Son of Man will meet you at the cinema at 8pm. We just don't talk that way, right? Why does Jesus refer to himself in the third, in the third person, right? He says, yes, Jesus will meet you. Right? He doesn't say that, he says, the Son of Man will meet you. Why does he use this strange language? The reason why I think he uses this strange language is because the Son of Man is also a title which is quite similar to the title Christ or Messiah. I think that Jesus here specifically uses the word Son of Man, especially within the context of Peter recognizing him to be the Christ, because the Son of Man also is a term for someone who is going to be a great ruler. A great ruler. So in Daniel chapter 7, which is the next slide. Next, uh, next slide, Alan? Oh, no, don't, not yet, okay. So in Daniel chapter 7, there is this vision or this prophecy. In my vision at night, I looked. And there before me was like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All peoples and nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. See, so this Son of Man titles is very close to the title of Christ. Here is someone that Jesus is calling himself, who we know is the eternal king and God's son, but he rules, right? God says in Daniel 7 that he will have absolute power for eternity over everything. But yet this powerful figure will suffer, be rejected, be killed and be raised from the dead. Now, these things do not happen as an accident. They are not chance of history. Because, uh, next slide, again, the language that is used is really interesting, right? Jesus says that these things must, they must take place. It is the idea of divine necessity. And that's why Jesus uses the word fulfillment. So, the Son of Man or the Christ going to the cross, dying, suffering, being rejected, being raised to life, are not things which just happen but they happen because they are part of God's plan, they are fulfillment of God's plan. His identity is Christ, Messiah, but his mission is to suffer and to die and to rise again. So what does it mean then to follow Jesus? And this is where the rubber hits the road for us. So look at verse 23. He then said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose and forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now, these words are very difficult words for us. And I think that the reason why is because we are not very 
uh, as Christians, perhaps we're not very fast that, okay, Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Son of Man, but how does that apply in my life? Because the words that Jesus speaks here are really difficult. Because it is opposite to the way that the world lives. So let me, uh, if the world were to write verse 23, what would they say? They would say that if you want to live your life to the full, you should put yourself first. Isn't that right? You should look out for your interests if you want to live life to the full. Whatever you give away, you lose. Isn't that what the, what the world thinks? If I give it away, I lose it, isn't it? I, I don't have it anymore. Whatever you keep, you gain. What good is it to waste your life for someone else or some, something else? Better to save my life and do what I want. Isn't that the general way that the world thinks? I think that's true, isn't it? But what Jesus is saying here is that it's the complete opposite. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Now, what does this word mean, deny themselves? Okay, my sister, she's a Catholic, and uh, apparently before uh, Easter, they have this thing called Lent. And during Lent, uh, apparently you're supposed to give up something. So my sister decided to give up chocolate ice cream. She denied herself chocolate ice cream for 40 days, and I think her husband uh, denied himself swearing. Okay? Now, this is not what Jesus has in mind. Uh, he's not saying, okay, we must deny ourselves one or, small, you know, one or two things for 40 days of the year. What he's saying is we must deny our very selves. We must seek to please Jesus and not to please ourselves. We have to deny what we want and rather give Jesus what he wants. He has to have authority over our lives. He has to have control over our lives. He has to have ownership over our lives. That's what it means to deny ourselves. And that's why it's linked to the second part where it says to take up their cross daily. Now, in the Roman world, uh, what they did was to make an example of those people who were going to be crucified on the cross, what they would do is, and we can read this in the account of Jesus, is that, um, you know, it, nowadays we are very humane, right? When people get uh, executed in, in, in Changi prison, I mean, it's all, I don't know where they execute, but I presume when they used to get executed in Changi prison, I mean, they just hang them and then you read about it in the newspaper tomorrow, right? But in the, in the Roman world, they, 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 they like to have their big spectacles. So what they did was, uh, you would have to carry the horizontal beam of the cross. See, so the, basically the, the vertical part is permanently in the ground. But the horizontal beam, you have to bring yourself, la, DIY execution, right? So you bring your horizontal beam, you carry it all along the streets of Orchard Road and all the HDB estates so that people can look at you and go, oh, this guy must have done something really bad, right? Because look at him now. And then you carry your cross, you drag it around. So you finally get to the execution place and then they, they nail it onto that horizontal part and then they, they then nail you up there, so, when Jesus says, you must take up your cross daily, it's actually a very, very vivid and quite a frightening picture. It literally means that you are to live like a dead person. You have given up your life on a daily basis for God, for Jesus. You, because when you see someone walking around with a cross, that person is dead. They, 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 there's no future for them, there's no tomorrow for them. And that's what Jesus said, when you carry, you want to follow Jesus, you take up your cross... 
and you, den- you, know, you deny yourself, you, you consider yourself dead in this for your own life because you are living for Jesus. So the disciples thought they had made a wonderful insight that Jesus was the Christ and Jesus was God's Son. And we would agree with them. But the thing is, if you agree that Jesus is Christ and God, then He must have authority over our lives and we must listen to His agenda, not impose our agenda on Him. See, getting the identity of Jesus right is only the first step. The second step is following Jesus and it means denying yourself and taking up your cross daily. Now the question that uh, anybody would ask is, why would anybody want to do that? I'm, I'm sure that it's more vivid for them. Why would anybody want to take up your cross willingly? Why would anybody want to deny themselves willingly the things that they want to do, the things that you feel are important? Why would you give that up? Well, in verse 24, Jesus knows what we are thinking and he knows what the disciples are thinking. And he says, For or because whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Now, all of us want to save our life. Uh, I imagine if we were all, uh, for our next church camp, we decide to have a cruise or something, and the cruise ship sank, we will all try to save ourselves, right? I mean, we won't, we won't willingly drown, we we'll all go to look for the lifeboat, and go on a lifeboat. And in life, it's the same thing, right? But except in, in life today, we save ourselves by building security in money, or career, or success, or achievement. Uh, children and family, the approval of others, the applause of people. But Jesus says that if you try to save yourself, but not deny yourself, and not take up your cross, you will eventually lose your life. And what does he mean? I think there are two ways to understand this verse. First of all, I think it's linked back to verse 22, right? Because Jesus will be raised to life. So you might save your life today, but you will only save it for 70, 80, 90, 100 years. And then you will die. Death will come for all of us. But if you lose your life, for Jesus, Jesus will give you eternal life. You will save your life. The second way of reading it, which I think also is linked to the first, is that the word life here has more than one meaning. Okay? Jesus is making a play on the word life. So, uh, I've got my... Um, my Greek New Testament, I'll read to you, there's a dictionary at the back. The word life here can mean self or inner life, one's, one's innermost being, uh, physical life, that which is life, uh, uh, the idea of having a soul, right? Okay. So what Jesus is saying is, okay, you may save your physical life, you may save life now for these 70 years, but you will lose your very innermost life. You will lose your, your soul, the whole of life. Because the word here, literally in the Greek, is the word psyche. Okay? That's what the word, you, whenever you see the word life here in verse 24, the word is psyche. So you may gain the physical material life for your 70, 80, 90 years, but what's the point if you lose your soul, your psyche, your whole inner life? Because only Jesus can save your soul or your inner life. Your, the whole of your being, not just the physical life. And in verse 25, it, it builds on the idea, right? What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? 
Now, uh, verse 25 uses the imagery of uh, accountancy, of profit and loss. Okay, what is the bottom line, right? So some of your translations might say, what profit is it to gain the whole world, okay? So he's saying, what profit is it? So on one side, you can have the whole world, but you lose your very self, or you forfeit your very self. And again, it's the same idea as back to verse 24, isn't it? What's the point of having the whole world, the material world, when you forfeit your very identity, your very soul? So you may gain this material world for just a short time, but you lose your soul or your whole identity for the rest of eternity. So, given a sense of perspective, what is the 70 or 80 years gaining this whole world, but yet for eternity, losing your very soul, your very self? It says it doesn't make sense. Uh, it's a bad proposition. It's a losing proposition. And then verse 26, Jesus goes on to say, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now Jesus here, if you, I want you to pay really close attention. He brings a new element in it, right? It's not just being ashamed of Jesus, but Jesus' words. There are two parts to it. Because it's very easy for us to say, yes, yes, I'm a Christian, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, but, but then we might be ashamed of his words, how he wants us to live in this world. And the idea of being ashamed is where we, we, we keep a low profile, right? We're not willing to stand up for Jesus and his words. So to, to not deny ourselves and to take up our cross means that we, we save ourselves from the ridicule and persecution of the world. We are ashamed of Jesus because of what people might think of us. So recently I went to a, a, a social gathering and I remember this uh, person who was not a Christian said that I believe that you know, as long as you are um, a sincere person, you will go to heaven. And this Christian person that I knew says, yes, you are right. I was thinking, no, you're wrong, right? But because of the social environment, he did the politically correct thing and said, okay, yeah, you know, you're right. But that was being ashamed of the words of Jesus. I visited a family, sorry, a school, I can't be too exact, but a school friend I know, and their, their daughter was having, a, I think, a lesbian relationship with someone and had children, and I was like, hey, and they were family, they were Christian, this family. And I said, hey, do you think that's alright that they're living together like this? And then the mother said to me, uh, her exact words were, it is perfectly alright. Then I was thinking, well, that's not what God would think, right? That's not what Jesus would think. But she was saying it because she was ashamed of Jesus and his words, in spite of you know, what other people might think, her family might think, her daughter would think. She was still ashamed of what God would think. So I want to ask you, as we close, what is the most important question in life? It is who Jesus is. And we can easily say Jesus is the Christ and the Messiah. But if that is so, then He must be the Christ. He must be the Messiah. He must have authority in my life. We must deny ourselves and take up our cross daily. Are you doing that? So I want you to use your imagination today. Just imagine for a second. Okay, uh, this is a bit uh, controversial. But just imagine this, alright? Just imagine you've died. You're dead. Sometime in the future, you're dead. And uh, there you are lying in your coffin and uh, people are all around you, all your loved ones, they're eating peanuts and uh, talking about the good times, right? 
they're all around you, and for some reason, I mean, we don't know what happens. We know that you know Jesus will come later, but what happens exactly at that point, we're not sure, right? But imagine, okay, you're floating around there or something, or you're aware of what's happening, and uh, you, you've died. Now, your life is over. You're there lying in the coffin. What is the point of all the material things that you have? Uh, they're all meaningless. The car that you drive, the house you live in, uh, the iPad, the iPhone that you have, whatever you have, it's all meaningless. You can't use it anymore. Think of all the things that you had to do on that to-do list the day before you died. All the dreams and aspirations you had. All the things that you needed to do. They're all meaningless too. And think about all the things that you worried about, that other people thought about you. They were, that's all meaningless too, isn't it? Because you're never going to see them again. I, I, I said maybe in heaven or hell, right? But you're not going to see them again. So that's meaningless too. But what is going to happen next? Well, what's going to happen next is, is Jesus going to be ashamed of you or not? Would Jesus say to you, I'm ashamed of you because you are ashamed of me in this life? Because if that was true, then how sad that, that, that would be for you, isn't it? Because you have gained the whole world, but you've lost your soul. You've tried to save your life, you didn't, you didn't want to deny yourself, you didn't want to take out your cross, but you've lost your very self. Now, I hope that that is not true for any of us. Okay, but recognizing who Jesus is is not enough. Following Jesus is just as important. So, on that day when Jesus say, sees you, will He say, say to you, I'm ashamed of you? Because if you're in danger of Him saying that to you, then you need to change because... It is not worth it. It is not the right decision. It is not the reasonable, logical decision to be ashamed of Him in this life. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that all of us would recognize who Jesus is, that He is your Son, that He is the Christ, He is the Messiah, that He is the eternal ruler and judge. But we pray that as we recognize who He is, that we will let Him set the agenda for our life, that we will deny ourselves daily, that we will take up our cross and consider ourselves dead and only live for Him, and that we can look forward to when Jesus comes again in glory, with Your glory and the glory of the holy angels, that He would say, Well done, good and faithful servant, and not be ashamed of us. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.